Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. little-known fact about my guest today. Many years ago, with her producing partner, who also happens to be her sister, they met Mike Myers, they became friends, and Mike told them about a film he had written that was sort of a spoof on the James Bond series and wondered if they wanted to produce it. They did. And, well, that became the beginning of the Austin Powers film trilogy, which, for a very long time, were the highest-grossing comedies in American film history. Welcome the extraordinary Jennifer Todd to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Jennifer Todd, the award-winning movie producer. Some, and I mean some, of her film credits include the Austin Powers movies, Boiler Room, Memento, Prime, Across the Universe, Alice in Wonderland, Jason Bourne, Celeste and Jesse Forever, The Way Back. Some of her selected TV credits include Going From Now, Backwards, City on a Hill, the 89th and 90th Academy Awards Ceremonies, Incorporated, and Project Greenlight. She served as the president of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's production company, Pearl Street Films. She's also partnering most recently with Hamilton director and podcast guest, Tommy Kale, and they have a full crazy slate of upcoming projects. She is married to an old friend of mine, the actor, Chris Messina. I am in awe of what this woman does in a day. I am lucky to call her friend and thrilled to welcome Jennifer Todd to the podcast. Um, Do you do a lot of interviews or do you manage to sort of stay away from that as much as possible? I try to stay away, but I do some talking to like film classes and things like that. But, you know, it's always hard because you hope that what you can say can be helpful, you know, but you never know. It's very hard. It's a weird business to give advice on because right. every everyone's path is so different, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but it must be fun for them to sit in a room with someone. When I, when I looked at your, I mean, guys, that was, you know, 10 out of 1 million credits. I thought of like, you know, when you go to a diner and you open up that huge menu and you're like, what is this? There's 1000 choices. Your ability over the span of, of, you know, a decades long career now has films from every choice on that huge diner menu. Um, I mean, starting, I mean, when you start off with the Austin Powers movies, which you really could have just been like, drop the mic, I'm done. Um, you kept going. Right. Well, I was lucky. I got an early start too, because I got to start producing in my in my twenties, which gave me a jump on it. So now that now that I'm older, it looks like I've been doing this for forever. You know uh, that I should be a hundred, which I'm not quite. I'm almost. But but I did. I was lucky in that sense of where I was and what the business was at that I was allowed to kind of start at, to start producing at a young age. I don't think everybody gets that shot. So, um, so in that way I was, I was really lucky. I also, um, I had dropped out of college to work as an assistant in the business. I worked for Joel Silver. I had worked on a movie as Anthony Perkins assistant on a film he directed. And um, I had dropped out for the semester to finish it. And then I ended up getting the job working for Joel when I was 18. So I was sort of, I never graduated from college, but I was sort of thrust into, um, you know, working in the in a in a big company and a very vibrant, you know, part of the business at a young age, which kind of enabled me to to kind of move quickly, you know. Well, how did even that opportunity come to you at eighteen? Well, well so I was um, I grew up in LA. My parents weren't in the film business, but a lot of my friends' parents were because I went to a private school called Buckley. And then I went to SC film school and my sister was four years ahead of me. So what happened is she graduated and she would hire me to be, you know, a PA for a week on spring break on stuff like any, you know, it was in LA and I would take any work I could kind of get. And so um, I knew this woman in physical production at New Line who helped me get this job as Anthony Perkins assistant, which was great. He was lovely. And I learned a lot on that movie. And I remember when I got to the set, it was all, um, you know, I'd been in film school, but I was like, God, on set, I was like, these are my people. Like, this is where I want to be. So I didn't want to go back to, I didn't want to miss a minute of it. So I took the semester off and then my sister got a job working for Joel Silver in development. And, um, and one day the, the receptionist quit. And so I was like, you know, I got hired. And then three weeks later, his assistant quit in a big blaze of, blaze, a blaze of glory. She went in and gave a big speech in front of everyone and walked out the door. And I was like, uh, I could do that job, you know? And he was like, all right, get in the car. And so then I was, there you go, I was 18. And I was like, uh, hiring, you know, I was meeting people out of college to replace myself as a receptionist. So I was like, oh, I'm not going back to school. This is, this is done for me, so. And were your parents, completely fine with that or was that like a big no, they were horrified they were horrified they were horrified but they were divorced at the time which actually helped I mean you know by then so it was easier for me to like you know kind of deal with them one-on-one -on -one. but but you know um and it's very funny I spoke it uh they they lovingly gave my sister and I the Mary Pickford at USC graduation a few years ago and I had to admit like in front of a bunch of people graduating from college I was like I can't give a speech and be like here I am so I had to be like Hey, I didn't, I dropped out, but you guys did great. You made it. You graduated. You know, um, it felt so hypocritical. It was very strange in the moment. She actually graduated. So she gave, she gave a good speech, but, um, but no, they weren't thrilled, but I, I was determined. So. So also what a dream to like do it with your sister to kind of go through this together. 
That's an incredible thing. Yeah, we were lucky, but I always think it's interesting looking back. You can't in the moment you don't realize it, but looking back, I realized that um, our parents got divorced when we were young, and we have one other sister who's who's older than Susanna. So Susanna and I ended up spending a lot of time going to the movie theater together as kids, and we loved. You know, we'd see Escape from Witch Mountain and the Computer Who Wore Tennis Shoes and Herbie the Love Bug and all those like Disney movies, and we'd wait at Farrell's across the street for someone to come pick us up. And so we had the shared love of film. And then we grew up on like Neil Simon movies. And I always joke that like, because my parents were divorced and I lived with a single mom, that it was like, it was all like Neil Simon in my house. And I never saw Western until I was like, you know, older because there was no, no man around to make me watch like male movies. Guy you know? movies, yeah. But I saw The Goodbye Girl a hundred times, you know? So, uh, but you know, um, an 80s comedy, whatever. But so anyways, I think it was, it just became that thing that, she and I had our common love together and and over the years producing and we don't work solely together but we still have projects together now um it's just it was a great thing to have uh someone that you could really you know lean on and depend on and do it with because it's like movies are hard and you've produced producing's hard and you can spend years of your life on something and have nothing to show for it and so it's like it was nice to have that like camaraderie I don't think I could especially at that age I'm now I have so much more experience but at that age. I don't think I could have done it alone. You know, I think I would have given up. It's so hard, you know? So when you were Joel Silver's assistant and kind mm-hmm. of thrust into that position, what, what did you do? What did you, you know, what movies did he do while you were working together? Uh, I worked on um, Lethal Weapon 2, Die Hard 2, and Predator 2, and Ford oh Fairlane, God. and a movie called Hudson Hawk. An unmarried and- woman and... Yeah, exactly. And uh, well, I don't know if any of it was too artful. Right. I mean, it was such a different business then that I don't think I'd ever, I think when I worked there, I didn't think I'd ever be a producer. I thought these producers were these big, loud cartoon characters who screamed into this phone. There was so much money in the movie business. Our deal was at Warner Brothers. We were on the lot. It was like people were, they were giving each other cars for Christmas. I mean, it was, it was so sort of bloated and, but it was all you knew at that point. It was a spectacle. Um, and I didn't love, you know, I liked, I looked, I met a lot of great people that I still know to this day, but his process is obviously not where I ended up wanting to be in the world, you know? And then I went from working there. I worked for Harvey. I worked for Miramax for a year. So I, and I worked for Harvey in LA. He was New York based. I worked for him for um, just under a year. And then, uh, which was interesting. It was before um, it was really early days. This is, Hang on, let me do the math. Uh, what was this? This was early 90s. Yeah, very early 90s. Yeah. So um, and then I went to work for Bruce Willis for two years. He made a development deal at TriStar and I knew him from the diehard from that that world. And so he hired me and I went to work for him and he was lovely. And we had a lot of lovely projects. He didn't really want to produce, I think, <laughs> at that point. So it wasn't really worth it. And then my sister had partnered with Demi and they had this little girl movie going uh, I know it's all it's all inbred, but anyways, we had this. Uh, they had this movie going that neither of them could be there for the whole time called Now and Then. So they hired me, and I went and um, produced that for them. And that was my first movie as a producer. So, so when you go back to that Now and Then is the project. Mm-hmm. Was it already set up? Was it funded? What what producing did you yeah. have to do at that point? Yeah, which was great. And thankfully, my sister had done a lot of the heavy lifting and the prep of it because it was already at New Line and um, and she had done a lot of the casting. Uh, but Leslie Gladder directed it. She was a first time 
um, movie director. She was already in television. She's a very big TV Still, director yeah. to this day. Um, so I went down and actually the writer, Marlene King, who ended up creating Pretty Little Liars after this, um, she and I went and we rented a house together in Savannah and we were there on set all day, you know. But it was a fairly low budget movie and it was an interesting movie because most of the movie starred the four younger girls and then it had these kind of, at the time, movie stars that all came down for the last kind of week or so of shooting. And it was Melanie Griffith and Rosie O'Donnell and Rita Wilson and Melanie Griffith. And and like, and like Melanie had Don Johnson with her and Rita had Tom. So it became, it was like this little movie that got like exploded at the end, you know. But it was it was a great experience and I loved it. And 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 that movie's really special because I can't tell you how many now 30 something girls come up to me and are like, you know, I'll be at lunch with some executive and they're like, oh, you produce now and then. It was like a very it's a it it it's a time and then even after it became, you know, a very cult. It's kind of like stand by me for girls. So it became a, you know, a, a cult movie in that way, um, for young women, which is really nice. Where did you know so much of producing or running anything, regardless of, of the um, kind of project it is, I feel like people ask you questions all day long and you have to either know the answer or seem like you know the answer. Right. And be able to make decisions, even if you're not 100% sure. I feel like I, so for people listening, I met Jen, uh, on a movie that she sort of godparented called Iron Abbey. It was written by Jen Westfeld and it actually co-starred Jen Westfeld and an actor named Chris Messina, who you may know because I mentioned him in the intro of Jen Todd, um, or maybe from his 30 million acting <laughs> Did you guys know each other before that movie? Chris and I? So the funny thing is I had the other movie that was keeping me busy, which is why I wasn't around for Iron Abbey that much, but I tried to help where I could is, um, was across the universe. And he, uh, he auditioned for a part. It was very funny because I remember him. He doesn't remember me. I was sitting next to Julie Taymor, but he left and Julie Taymor's like, that guy's a great actor. He's a great actor. I think he's a little old for what I want, but it, you know, it was very funny. So I remember that and it was right, but they were very, close together because we made the movies at the same time yeah. which is why I was in New York so but no then but I always tell you that I have you to you to thank for my beautiful children so You're and I tell them that story it's so funny I think I told that story recently to the Kesslers I think I was telling them about the the story of of, of Alana and and uh, uh, how uh, how happy my life ended up so yes and I fought for Chris Messina because I knew him so deeply from his work in the theater and I had seen him do, I mean, not that I had to, you know, put a gun to Telsey's head to cast him, but he had less film credits at the time. And with little films, you're trying to star it up as much as possible. Right. And I remember just being in awe of every character I saw. And he's like a character actor in terms right. of the way he delves into things. And sure. I just had seen him in like 20 plays. Maybe yeah. by that point, you know, we kind of came up together and I thought, I've never seen this human repeat himself. Even if on the page, it looked like the character description was exactly the same. He right. found a way to be so original in every single thing he did. And I remember when he came in for Iron Abbey, I was like, this is the most prepared person you could imagine. And the most neurotic person. In terms <laughs> of <laughs> exactly. Well, 
the perfect tells thing. the story of when he came in into it was when I my offices were at Revolution and we were having casting there. Yeah. And he said he saw me walk by and he thought I was the casting director. And he's like, you know, he's like, she I thought you were so cute, but I was like, you can't don't go there, Chris. You got an update. Casting. Right, exactly. Date the casting director. Yeah. I love that. So but my God, like it just goes to show you how weird the world is, um, how it all works out. But lucky, lucky for me. Yes. But I guess what I wanted to go back to pre-Christmasina is I feel like when I met you, I just thought the way you walk in a room is someone who really is passionate about making movies and confident about making movies. And I always felt like you were in your body, like you were grounded and where does that come from? Do you feel like, did you come out that way? Is that like a fake it till you make it thing? Like what is That's so that? kind of you. I don't know that I think about that very much. I think it's interesting. I always joke when my kids, some, one of my kids asked me the other day, they're like, mom, what's your dream job? You know? And I was like, Ooh, God, I don't, you know, rock star. I don't know other than what I already do, because I was like, I came out just, I started so young, only doing one thing. So I really am not, I'm really not meant, or I don't have any skill to do anything other than the job I have. And I'm not a hyphenate. I don't also write, I don't direct, you know what I mean? I'm not one of those people you meet these, there's so many of these fantastic young actors who do it all, you know, they do, they check every box. I'm not like that. I'm so old school. So like, I only do the one thing, but I still really love it. And I feel like, I don't know, I actually think, I think producing, I'm really, I'm fairly organized. I like solving problems. And I think women are really inclined to make great producers because it is management and you are managing personalities. And I actually think that old school Joel Silver that I talked about, I think that that was antiquated and they made it all about themselves. And in truth, I always say for the job and I'm sort of all over the place now, forgive me, but I always think for this job, like I serve the movie. Mm-hmm. you know like that's my job is just to try to like serve the movie and sometimes that means you know a lot of times it means supporting the director but sometimes it's giving the director news they don't want sometimes it's about like all of that you know what I mean so I think that that's just like I don't know I landed in that kind of maybe maybe it was then I felt I feel more comfortable now than when I first met you and we were doing that but I feel like that's just sort of that is where I like to live and maybe I guess I feel grounded in it you know were you an organized kid? I was. I was kind of an old soul because my parents were divorced. I didn't have a lot of um, my my. I just lived with my mom, and she worked a lot. I didn't have a lot of um, guidance in that way. So I became. I was sort of that like old, you know, that kid who didn't stay out late even though they could. And I was just always sort of the. I was always. I kind of came out a grown up too. I don't and know did what you, happened. even though that you're the youngest, do you feel like in some ways you acted like the oldest? No, my other, my sisters are equally as um, sort of in their, in their way. I mean, my older sister's a physicist, so she's, she's her own thing, but no, and my, and I was very lucky. Suzanne, you know, really took a lot of care for me as we were growing up together. And, um, uh, but no, I didn't, we didn't have that for sure, but we all just like, I look at my, like comparison of what, you know, growing up, I was, a, a little kid in the 70s of like what was permissible for you like you know what I mean of like I walked home alone I had work key I let myself in eventually somebody came home it's like now yeah. you look at you what made yourself kids. your own snack yeah and now my kids are like 11 and 12 and they're like can you pour me a bowl of Cheerios and you're like really yeah, <laughs> yeah. well it's it's a lot of steps 
Um, it's a lot of steps. Yeah. And, you know, you got to take the milk out of the fridge. Totally. So. And put it back. Yeah. That, that's oh. really all I want. If you could yeah. also just go that third step and put it back. <laughs> Are they, I mean, they have grown up on movie sets between their dad's acting jobs and their mom's producing jobs. Well, well, let me not assume that. Do they come to set a lot? Is that a world that they like? Not a lot. So they don't remember it. We were lucky enough. We made this one movie live by night when they were a little bit younger and they came on the road with us, which was so nice. It was so fun to get to do that. They came to Boston and Georgia with us. And I think that was like a real adventure, but for the most part, they kind of have their own lives and they've Mm -hmm. got soccer practice and skateboarding. And so they know that like, you know, our friends are in the business too, but they also go to public school, which I think helps, you know, there were not, they're not, I think that's the bigger environment is like who their friends are and who's that. And so since they, since they go to a, a, like a more mixed school, I don't think they feel the weight of the business so much. They do think that all I do is talk on the phone. They're like, your job is just talking on the phone. We don't understand it. Can you tell me how the Austin powers, um, I think, I don't know if this is still true, but there was a time where they were the highest grossing films in the history of film. Well, is that comedy. still true? Co- yes, comedy. in comedy, yes, the world not of comedy. I don't know. I haven't looked lately. I mean, the funny thing about Austin Powers is it was, um, my sister had met, um, my sister and to me had been at the, had, to me was presenting at the Oscars and Susanna gone as her guest and they had met Mike and his wife and Robin just left SNL and he had moved out to LA and we ended up, it was very funny. We ran into them out to dinner and became friends. And he started, we started spending time with them and he told us about this sort of bond spoof script he was working on, which he then gave to Suzanne and I um, to read and produce. And at the time it was, um, it was always very funny. I mean, Mike is so gifted, but he had, uh, it was much more of a, it was, it had the 60s swinger in it, but it had a lot more of the kind of Bond stuff in it. And there was this Leslie Nielsen movie coming out called Spy Hard. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, you know, they have, they made this movie. So, so Mike kind of went back and rewrote it as even more of the kind of swinger stuff, the more of the 60s, you know, and he, and he would watch, we'd watch all these Italian spy movies, which was really fun. So anyways, we went to put the, you know, make the movie. We, we took it to New Line. And then we uh, set it up there and then we tried to find a director and took us forever. And, and Suzanne and I, Suzanne had gone to film school with Jay Roach and he had taught one of my classes when I was at SB and we'd always been really close friends. And through us, he had met Mike. And, and so that we ended up getting to hire him, which was an incredible coup that, that Bob Shea and DeLuca let us do that. Um, but anyway, so then we made the movie and, uh, and when we tested the movie, um, the, our first test, we got a 33 at our first screening. I don't know if you know how like those NRG out of a hundred, out of a hundred, we got a 33 <laughs> in the top two boxes, which is like you know, you know, excellent or very good. And and it was really interesting in the studio. Not Deluca to his credit, but the head of distribution at the time, people were very panicked about the movie, and and we we kept working on it, and we we changed the ending, and eventually I think we got to like a 60, but we the movie never tested. Well, um, someone told me that comedies, unusually shaped comedies don't test well, that like Pee Wee's Big Adventure had, had not tested right. well, you know. People are and, comfortable uh, with something more formulaic often in those. Exactly. Focus group but, you know, yeah. at that time, at that time, we didn't know that. And then so I think our expectations were incredibly low for the movie, which is why it's so amazing. I don't think if you ask any of us 
you know, while we were making it like, oh, are there going to be sequels? I think, you know, anyone would have laughed, nope. you know, nope. because it was also at the time, it was a very risky movie. It was an original character. A lot of those movies had, he had done Wayne, he's done Wayne's World. And a lot of those movies were based on SNL characters. This one was entirely new. And that's why it was, it felt so much riskier to take because it hadn't been tried out on some other platform before, you know. Did it get good reviews or was it just a crazy word of mouth thing where people, first of all, that's a movie where people went back to see it right. many, first, many times. Yeah. The first movie did do well. I can't remember the domestic on it, it was under 60, but which was good. It was very good for what it was, but the set, the two, the sequels did far more at the box office. What happened is that was, it came out right when, um, during kind of the video boom. So what happened is they were looking at not only the domestic, but the rentals on the movie mm. were enormous. So that's what happened, which were now non-existent. So well, it's a different model. But that was now. really that was really, it, the, the sequels were driven by the rental. So there's so it didn't happen right away. Like you make that no. movie, it does okay yes. in theaters, but it then did, yeah, right. it did well. And then they kind of called up and said, "Hey, we're you you know we're looking at this rental. You know, you're doing amazing. Like we should start talking about it. You know, another one." And that that felt still really kind of out of the blue. So. You, you know, so you're known, you and Suzanne, your sister, mm -hmm. are sort of known for that trilogy of incredible right. comedy gold that will live forever. Like if someone was making, you know, a time capsule, uh, that would absolutely be in it for future aliens to see what comedy gold was in our world. But then like you make Memento. Right. It's so funny because I feel like, um, you know, it's kind of like what movies you want to see. I think your ability as a producer, you know, you can make a lot of different kinds of movies, but sometimes a lot of times movie, producers get pigeonholed the way that writers and actors do. And some people yeah. are like, you're an action producer, you're a comedy producer, but I work on a lot of stuff and it just depends on what gets made. But Memento was, was such a special experience. And um, I had met Aaron Ryder, who's the executive producer. We talked about, you know, how we could be in business together. And then I was in New York shooting Boiler Room and he sent me the script. And I remember really distinctly getting into bed one night and reading, starting to read that script and having to like start over a couple of times. And then I was like, I'm going to put this down and read it in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I can't do this at night. And it read like stereo instructions, but I thought it was so cool. And I flew back to LA and Suzanne and I met Chris and he was obviously, and I've watched following his earlier movie and he was so smart and so impressive. And I was like, I'm dying to make this movie. I, I was like, I was very clear. I didn't know who would watch it, but I was, I just wanted the, the challenge of getting to make it. And did you, obviously, as you just described, like certain things are really easy to read on the page and to kind of visualize yeah. what the experience would be. Um, and I would imagine as you're describing it, that that was a really hard film to kind of visualize based on what's on the page yeah um, or it was just so complicated you needed to read it a couple of times yeah, it, but it was so fun for that and like even when we were filming all the crew had had um you know cut put the movie in chronological order you know they all had their different versions of it it was such a fun challenge you know and when do you get to do that you know and uh, even still I swear there were days shooting where I was like oh okay now I get it. you know it's like a, I was discovering it and I always tell the story is really fun we went to the Venice Film Festival which was so posh and fun with this little movie, you know, and we were sitting, Chris and Emma, his wife and Jonah, his brother who wrote the story and Aaron and everybody worked on, we were outside and we're, we were still arguing about the ending of the movie. 
And I thought this will never, ever happen again. We were talking about whether Sammy Jenkins was real or not and how we could look at it. And I was just, it was so uniquely special in that way that I, I don't imagine I could ever recreate that experience on a movie again. When you decided to sort of go out on your own and mm-hmm. have your own shingle, as it were, and not continue. I mean, you and your sister, as you said, continue to work together, have done so many movies together. Um, but there was a moment where, for whatever reason, you decided to sort of be an independent contractor, as it yeah. were. Um, mm-hmm. Was that scary, having had a partner all that time, to, or was it the right time? Well, it was interesting. I stopped. I worked with a couple of people along the way. My, you know, our kids were little. I married to an actor, and I, um, I spent and I'd known Ben Affleck since um, Boiler Room, and so I had run into him, and he had asked me about coming to produce with him, and so I went to work with him and Matt, and run their company and produce with them for a chunk of time which was great. And, um, and I got to make live by night with Chris and I, Jason Bourne and, and project Greenlight and all the stuff we got to do. And then I think I just got to a place where, um, then I was like, you know what, I've been doing this a long time, always with other people. So I just was like, maybe it's my time to feel what it feels like just on my own, you know? And, uh, but you know, it was, it was just, you know, it was a long time coming, I think. Yeah. Can you just talk about, I mean, they are they're you know, a famous Hollywood couple, Ben sure. Affleck and Matt David. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about working with them and that relationship and what sustained it for as long as it does? And and was it weird sort of being a part of another couple in some way? <laughs> well, they're a couple, but they're, they're very uh, busy individual people. And they're both, I mean, they're both so smart and gifted. And, and, and it is their, you know, in a world where we don't make a lot of movie stars, they're like, you know, undeniably sort of, you know, famous movie stars. And they're both, they, you remember they're both writers and I, um, and obviously Ben's a, a very gifted filmmaker, which is why it was so cool to get to work with them. And and like I said, I knew him from Boiler Room and we'd always stayed friends and I'd seen early cuts of his other movies. And I wasn't surprised at what a great filmmaker was because he's so smart. And um yeah, and so you know, getting to work with them was 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 so fun. There's like I said, when I would get their attention, the problem is they're both so busy. Yeah, that you know, and then we and even Love by Night, we we prepped and pushed a bunch because Ben would all of a sudden David Fincher calls and is like, "Can you make Gone Girl?" And in your movie, you know, that's the thing about you know that when you work with people that are as busy as the both of them are, so that you know, eventually I thought I as fun as that was, I was like, you know, that's part of the reason why I was ready to, to leave and go on my own. But it was fun. It was funny to make a boss. We ma- we shot Live By Night in Boston a little bit. It was very interesting to be in Boston with Ben because he is, it's like Elvis Presley, you know, um, on the streets there. So it was, it was very fun to see the phenomenon of them. So when you look back at sort of all the different, you know, from Julie Taymor to, to, Ben Affleck and and Chris and um, Griffin Dunn, uh, who we love. Love, Who we Um, love. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, I know you said you're not a hyphenate, you're not going to direct, although never say never. Um, True. What are things that you sort of think about 
when you think of Tim Burton, when you think of certain people, I mean, how many movies have you made? I don't know. I think it's, I know it's like over 20. I'm not sure I'd have to count. Okay. I'm very bad at keeping track of my own data. You can tell here. Um, okay. But I think it's interesting about producing and what was so hard to make clear is that every, this is like, I always joke when you go home, when people go home and your cousin's like, what does a producer do anyway? You know, and you're trying to explain and like, you're trying, you have all your little like, ah, oh, you're like the general manager. You're the first one in, you're the last yeah. one out. But like, in truth, your job is different on every movie, which is why it's so hard to quantify because what you do for Tim Burton is different than what you do on Celeste and Jesse, which is different than what you do on Iron Abbey. And in truth, it's like, it's not even just what the director needs you to do, although it is a lot of that. And, you know, it's what the movie needs you to do, which is why, like I said, I, I try to look at it as like I'm serving the movie. And a lot of times it's like, what, how, you know, what are the problems at stake? And like, I made this little movie, Celeste and Jesse, forever that Rashida and Will McCormick wrote, you know? And I love. And, and it's so sweet, but like, at, honestly, that was like, Rashida and I were like financing movie arts between the two of us for the first six weeks. And like, we shot in my office, we shot, we begged our friends, you know, it was like, I remember the line producer came up to me and was like, the parking lot overcharged us. But it was like that, it was like an iron hat, it was so small. And yeah. so like, and I was like, yeah, on, on Alice in Wonderland, I'm not dealing with the parking lot. You know, it's like, it was a very different thing. So studio movies versus independence are so different versus, you know, television, like everything is shaped so differently. And the role of TV, you know, is all the roles are different. So you really like, look at what the needs of each one are, and you sort of fill that and they're, and they're, they're satisfying in a very different way. Like, as much as I love Alice in Wonderland, I did like we had so many, I had so much help. Once we got that movie going, we had the big Disney machine and it was so fun that, that um, you know, that we could, um, sorry, my iPads, my, my iPods were being weird. Um, the big Disney machine and, and, and all that marketing, all this, you know, but I love the little ones too. Cause I got, because I did everything on them. I feel so much ownership of them. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm sure how, you know, you feel of the stuff that you, you did, you know, I, or I made this little comedy with Maggie Carey called the to-do list with Aubrey Plaza and Bill Hader. And we, you know, we made it for like a million three in LA and like, we didn't have a casting director. I was the cat. It's like, you know what I mean? I, we did it all. And like, and that was really fun too. It's really hard, but it's really fun. Like, so, you know, they're all very different. But I can tell and people listening will be able to hear like, you still love it. I do love it. I do. Yeah. I really enjoy it. There's something I mean, how lucky am I? I? You know, I could be cleaning teeth. There's a lot of things we could do in the world. So I see you do that. I think when your son said, what's your dream job? It's clearly being a dental hygienist. Dental hygienist. I could be cleaning teeth. I could be doing a lot worse than that. No, I often play that game. You run down, drive down the street and you're like, I'm so happy I don't work there or there. Yeah. So, but I do love it. But I think that's what I think is hard about, so hard about helping people understand what the job is or figuring out if it's right for them of all that, because it's so different every time. And sometimes you worked on a script for years and sometimes the script comes along quickly and it all kinds of lines up. Sometimes it's writer director. Sometimes it's a studio script that's been through 20 writers and you're navigating a script that's got problems in it because it was overwritten. You know what I mean? Like it's all, every time has, so uh, it's just about figuring out what it's supposed to be. So how I love Thomas Kale so much. I think he's uh, a really talented human. I know it's too bad he's not nice or talented. And 
he's neither of those things or married to somebody talented. I know nothing about him is working. Nothing about him. Um, my favorite thing in, in talking to Tommy on the podcast is he actually shared his entire hair regiment beyond <laughs> like Hamilton, beyond, you know, Bob Fosse. We got into this very detailed how he handles his hair. And Lin-Manuel Miranda told me when he was listening to that, he actually texted me, do you know that when I met him, he was using shaving cream in his hair, Alana, shaving cream. So he's come a long way. That was my favorite part of the freestyle love Supreme Doc was Tommy's early hair because I haven't been so privy to it. Yes. Um, But how did you guys meet and how did you come together and, and how is it that you're working together I got so lucky. I uh, was when I was producing the uh, the first Oscar show. We had uh, Moana was nominated. A song from Moana that Lynn wrote was nominated, and Tommy came to help him with the number. You know, uh, you know, we were doing a big production number, and I got to meet him then. And he, how do you not fall in love with Tommy? He's so such a nice person. He's the most he's likable person on the planet, and so we became. Uh, friends and started talking about what we could do together and then he had he had had a television deal already he had done Grease and he had just done Fosse Verdon which was incredible and 20th being smart uh studio said you know we want Tommy to have an even bigger kind of film company here uh, uh, sorry tv company here so uh you know so he was looking for a partner and called me and I just remember us sitting on my couch one night and I was like Doc, like you were, you know, like yes, it was such an easy. And actually, you know, that's some of the best stuff. And it actually happens very easily, and uh, and it's just been a dream. And in truth, unfortunately, because of COVID, you know, a lot of his his theater work has been, you know, not happening. But because of that, our we've had I've gotten to have a lot of Zoom time with him, and we've gotten a lot of great stuff going. And it's just been a joy to watch him uh, put things together, and his relationships are are so deep in, in that world, in, in every world. He, everyone knows him, first of all. There's no one who doesn't know him or like him. I'm just saying he can, he's, he's managed to reach out to a lot of, you know, people in the theater who haven't been doing TV, who we actually got a window to, to write something or come in on something. So it's right. just been, it's just so fun. I wanted to ask you that before, before we, I, I know how many things you have on your plate today. When COVID hit, you know, I was doing, you know, Broadway shut down sort of really without warning. We didn't quite understand what was going right. on. We were hearing like little rumors and, and of things going on around the world, but it sort of really hit home when they were like, this is your last show um, and you're not coming back to the theater tomorrow. And it really was a startling realization of what, beyond not knowing what was to come, we right. just had never experienced anything like that. Um, were you filming anything? Were you in production? What was happening for you a year ago? We have a TV show that we shoot in the in New York called City on a Hill for Showtime that we were in the middle of the second, we were third episode of the second season. And so that shut down really quickly. Um, and we just, thankfully, uh, we, we, we went back in November and, and finished it and it, and it launches this Sunday night in the second season, which is nice. Oh, but, exciting. but yeah, so that was really quick. That was quickly like everybody shut down and, and got on and playing, but I don't think, I mean, look, my kids have been out of school for, and, and because we're in LA, they've been out of school for a year. So I don't think, I think if you had told me that a year ago, I think we all would have lost our minds if we knew what was to come, you know? 
what was, and it's sort of hard to see it because we're so aware of, of the suffering of the loss of human life, economy, sort of all the things that have been really hard for people. Um, what was the silver lining for you in this year? Uh, for um, me, the obviously was actually the time with, with, with my family was lovely, you know, and, and has been, and, and I do think that I joke about the kids, but I do think that, I do think we'll have like a different relationship probably than, than we would have had, you know, having had this like year at this time in their lives together and that, and actually the silver lining was like, I had this, I could work on all this. I mean, I worked on my movie development too, but I could work on all this TV too with, with Tommy was really great. So, I mean, we're so lucky that I could have, that I have a job that I could work from home and I didn't yeah. have to go on the road. And Chris was here for most of it. He filmed, um, you know, he just got back from North Carolina. He was shooting something there for two months. But other than that, he's been here. So, um, Do you know your next thing where you'll be on set getting ready to go? Well, we're do, I'm working on, speaking of Broadway, I've, I was working on the narrative um, story of Come From Away. We were going to do it as a, as a film. And we've decided to do it. I'm just going to steal from Tommy Kale. We're, we're doing the theatrical staged version like a Hamilton-style film. So we're going to shoot that in New York at the show and fields in early May uh, with, the, with the Broadway cast on the stage, um, which will be really fun. And I think it'll be so incredible to for these actors to get to go back to the stage. And also, it, we're lucky for us because we'll have the, the film to... Um, to partner with someone on and have it out by 9-11, which is the 20th anniversary this year, which is unbelievable. That's incredible. Ugh. Um, Jennifer Todd, thank you for your time today. It's so amazing to catch up with you. I adore you as a human. I admire you and, and all of the art you continue to put out into the world and will continue to do so. And we're lucky to have you making really incredible stories come alive for those of us who get to see them. I'm just so grateful to you. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. Anytime, Alana, anytime. It's so nice to see you. We could have a, we have a, you know, a long, long catch up in our future. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and I hope you've enjoyed the previous 200 something episodes, which I have loved making every single one. If you have been thinking about contributing to the podcast, it couldn't be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations and it's all laid out for you there. I would be forever grateful, but mostly I'm just so happy to make this show for you and I can't wait to share next week's guest. Until then, stay safe, be healthy, and thank you for listening. The episode was edited by Nicholas Clark. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.